Real quick before we dive into this episode of the podcast, be sure to grab your free PDF copies of my latest books at frugal.show forward slash free. Now on to the show. Welcome to the Frugalpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah St. John, and my guest today is a serial entrepreneur with eight successful exits to date across a variety of industries, and he's gotten companies onto the Inc. 500. Welcome to the show, Travis Steffen. Thanks for having me. Well, good to have you. Can you give us a little bit of your background and history? Sure thing. And uh, apologies in advance if you hear any cat noises. Got one on my desk. She is wanting to participate in the podcast as well. So I have been starting scaling and selling technology companies here in Silicon Valley or Los Angeles for the past years. I've been fortunate enough in that period of time to have successfully sold eight of those that I have either founded or co-founded. I have been a part of exits that I was not a founder of the companies. I was just been accountable for growing the companies and, and so forth or operating the companies and have helped a number of other companies grow, raise money, exit as well through the mentorship that I offer to some of the biggest accelerator programs in the world. You know, all the ones that you've heard of from Silicon Valley, I'm, I'm pretty heavily participatory in those. So, I mean, it, it's been kind of a non-linear path, I would say, as exciting as the eight exits sound, they're I've been many in there that have not done anything. So it's not all sunshine and rainbows, but it's definitely been an accelerated paid education. And then outside of that, I've, I'm also a doctoral candidate in marketing with a specialization in artificial intelligence. And I was able to get a couple other, you know, graduate degrees in advance of that as well. Very few of which actually have any bearing on life whatsoever. Wow. You have quite a resume, I guess you could say. Oh, thanks. So how did you get into scaling and growing companies and exiting companies and all that? Well, I'm, it wasn't deliberate. I'll start there. I grew up in Iowa. It's very farm or mm. factory, very blue collar. Didn't have any entrepreneurs or business people in my family. Didn't have any friends who were entrepreneurs or business people, really, unless it was friends father started a dentist office or something like that. That was the extent of entrepreneurship in the upbringing that I had. But I really quickly realized that I was borderline unemployable. I just did not really have the patience for working under somebody that I didn't fully respect and want to be like. And in some of the kind of blue collar jobs, that's just not the reality. So I knew that from a pretty young age, I knew that I was going to have to do something that was a little bit off the beaten path. I didn't even consider entrepreneurship because I didn't know that that was an option. First goal was go be a professional athlete. And then when I did, when I realized that I was not absurdly genetically gifted in all the ways that you must be in order to be at the top of that game, I wanted to be a professional online poker player, which I did for a period of time. Then the U.S. government decided on April 15th, 2011, that that was no longer something that you could do. And that was kind of the catalyst for my entrepreneurial life to begin. And thankfully I had withdrawn some of my bankroll in advance of that to start my first company, which combined with my student loan checks, I was able to finance a bunch of the big mistakes that I made in that first company. And from there, just continued to parlay those lessons learned from either successful exits or failed businesses into the next ones. And the first dozen or so were bootstrapped. A couple then later on were venture backed, but bootstrapping is definitely the way to go if you're able to actually make it happen and you have the stomach for it. Oh, yeah. I would love to hear about any tip that you have on bootstrapping or kind of your experience with that. I would say first and foremost, early on in my career, I was bootstrapping because I wanted to tell everyone I was choosing that path. Realistically, I just didn't know how to raise money and no one in their right mind should have given me any anyway, because I really didn't know what I was doing at that stage of the game. I would have probably fallen prey to the same mistakes that many early stage venture backed founders make in that 
I would have thrown money at problems and not used kind of creativity and grit and determination and scrappiness to get through them. So bootstrapping was really the only option. And in so doing, I was able to find a way to live really well on a really shoestring budget and at the same time was able to get a really accelerated education even after having dipped my toes back into academia in this kind of arena, I found that the vast majority of what folks are being taught are the things that I learned the hard way. The vast majority of people that you're learning about are often people that are actually in the chair doing it. So there were some things that I was able to pick up in academia that, that helped, but the vast majority of the lessons were just learned the hard way. And that's the best way, in my opinion. So. From a bootstrapping perspective, the first question that I would ask is, am I bootstrapping because I want to bootstrap or am I bootstrapping because I have to bootstrap? And if it's the latter, being able to alleviate yourself of that particular reality so you at least have the option of raising money is really important because there are some businesses that are really important to the history of humanity that just can't be. They have a really substantial hardware component. If there is a lot of inventory and, and, and so on and so forth, there's a lot of money that can be raised, whether it's debt or equity, right? And if it's inventory, maybe it's debt. If it's a big, scary bet, maybe it's equity. So you have some time to experiment. But through that same lens, once you have the ability and the skill set to raise money, if you need to, being able to proactively make the decision to bootstrap is, it's the black belt move, really, at the end of the day, just because of the fact that you're the one that's taking all the risk. You're highly constrained on what you're able to do and not do, and things have to work, right? So without the playbook for exactly what needs to be done in what order, at what time and why, the signals that you need to see and the economics that you need to see make it of a compounding growth story while still hanging on to 100% of your equity is not a, an easy needle to thread. So you really have to have your eyes wide open and have done a substantial amount of homework or the, the expensive mistakes you make will be 100% on you. And like for some that, doesn't, that don't necessarily have the stomach for that level of risk, it can be scary. And it's why a lot of people quit and go back to corporate. I love those tips. You had mentioned that you were, I guess, lived in Iowa, which is actually where my whole family is from, like my extended family. What part of Iowa? I'm just curious. I was raised in a town called Muscatine, which is right on the eastern edge of Iowa on the Mississippi on the border of Illinois. Oh, okay. Yeah, because the well, I have some in Des Moines and Cedar Rapids. Yes, yeah, so you're about half hour from there. Oh, okay. Yeah, because the majority of my family is in, well, it's a small town called Britt. It's near, it's probably like a half hour from Clear Lake. Sure. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah small Which is state. still kind there's, of small. Yeah. There's three million people in the state. Everyone knows the cities and towns yeah. in Iowa for the most part, if you if you were raised there, so. Yeah. But there are more more people in the San Fernando Valley here in Los Angeles than are in the entire state of Iowa. Yeah, that's wild. When you have a new idea for a company, what's the first thing that you typically do? I try to forget. That's the first thing I, I typically oh, really? do. Yes. And, and the reason for that, it's actually not because I'm like too busy or anything like that. It's actually just because I was the source of the idea. And I'm one data point. I'm an outlier in in the broad spectrum of who a product would be for. And chances are, I'm only seeing it through the lens of the person that would own the company, not the person that would buy. And even then I would only be one data point. So there's no way to interpret patterns 
which need to be interpreted in order to build a business that can succeed. So oftentimes what I'll do is I'll say thank you to that idea for bringing me back to the table of entrepreneurship in that lens, figure out what the customer that I, that that particular idea would have served. And the first thing I'll ask myself is, are there enough of these customers, this specific niche to see that this could be a growing business just off the backs of how quickly this market is growing? And is it narrow enough niche that I can speak specifically into the soul of one single person and do that across the board for anybody who's viewing that particular asset. Now, in doing so, I will typically divorce myself of anything to do with that prior idea. Oftentimes we as humans, if we really get married to an idea, we're going to try to fit every data point possible into the reality that we want to believe. With that in mind, we're not like the data has no utility. If instead we go in and we say, we're going to completely wipe our minds clean and go in and let the data speak to us and let the data form the conclusions with a completely clean slate. We're going to go in and have a series of structured, unbiased interviews that don't quote unquote lead the witness, so to speak, and make sure that we talk to enough of those particular avatars that A, we know where to find them. B, we know what the patterns are and what have not been patternistic so we can find edge cases. Uh, and C, we can listen to how people are describing the problems that they're describing, which informs copy, where they're saying they would look for it, which informs where you would market, what pain they're saying that it would alleviate, which then gives you a good idea of what success looks like and feels like the value of solving those problems that can give you clues onto pricing. All of those types of things are inevitably huge, huge shortcuts versus if you get obsessed with an idea and just decide to invest a ton of time, effort, and attention to making it perfect before it sees the light of day. And then inevitably nine times out of 10, it's just crickets. I'm curious what types of companies, or even if you're able to share their names, I don't know, have you started? And then I'm kind of curious about the ones that you've had the exits on. There are probably too many that I've started or co-started to name. The ones that have exited, the first one was a clothing line. And the story behind that, I was in college at the time. I was fighting professionally. I was fighting mixed martial arts profession at the time here in the States and over in Thailand. And there was a big brand in the space at the time called Tap Out. And it was like a $500 million a year very niche version of, of what Nike is for the rest of sport, right? I just saw the guys that were running that company because they had a reality show and realized they did not look like the caricature of an entrepreneur or business person that I had in my mind. When I saw those guys and I said, hey, they have a bunch of tattoos, they're kind of profane and they just have big dreams and they want to do big things. And I'm just going to clone exactly what they did because it's like their essence is kind of speaking to my soul, so to speak. That's what I did. And it was just basically a tap out clone. I was called Sin, oddly enough. And I was kind of a kid and wanting to be edgy and cool and, and so forth. And, and, you know, that company was fairly break even in the grand scheme of things. I invested a tremendous amount of my own money at the time, which is not a tremendous amount of money in grand scheme of things. But at the time, it was everything into that company. Anything I made, I would reinvest into that company. When I sold it, it was a little over break even, like in the grand scheme of things. But it gave me enough capital to go in and start the next thing. And I was in school at the time for exercise physiology and biomechanics to get my master's degree, my first master's degree. And that one was called Workout Box. It ended up being a platform for personal trainers to create their own online interactive fitness sites for free to sell those to their clients. And that was, those were the early days of kind of e-learning and sort of thing. So it was kind of, it was an SEO driven business that got bought by a publicly traded company doing a roll up of SEO driven brands. We were big in that space at the time. We were like number one on the internet for workouts. 
exercises and keywords like that at the time. This was back in like 2013 when you could still be that without a 10 figure budget effectively. And, you know, in that we, I ran that business for five years. And at the same time, I was also starting other little side companies and whatnot. You know, I started one called Sashfer, which is almost like a precursor and combination of like Bitcoin and Venmo before the age of cryptocurrency. And the problem with that is I was associated with that company like by name rather than being anonymous like the person or people who started Bitcoin. And my attorneys got back to me after the technology was viable and said, we you know legal precedent for what you're trying to do. You're not creating a currency, but you're not a money remitter. Like there is no licensure to allow you to do this. So we would either need to raise money and create it, or, you know, we, we got to figure something else out. So not knowing how to raise money at the time, I ended up selling it to a Canadian financial institution who still owns it to this day. I have no idea what they're doing with it, but that then seeded the next thing, which was an app company in the early days of the app store. We had 21 simple apps in the early days of the app store, ended up getting bought by a larger app company, took that money and rolled it into a company called Cyber Superpowers, which was a dumb name, but the company itself I thought was clever, but inevitably not what I wanted to be doing with my life. It was, we we're compiling, it was basically like fractional team staffing. We would build product teams of a product manager, an engineer, a designer, a strategist, and we would like rent that product pod to companies who couldn't afford to hire their own product team or like a traditional agency. And through that lens, we would just build their technology and also communicate with them in the way that they would to a CEO. If they were all working for that CEO. We ended up selling that company to a graphic arts firm in Manhattan just to expand upon their portfolio. And at this, around the same time, started a company that was, it was early days of social media in business. So after Facebook started allowing businesses to join and things like that, the same thing with Twitter, we realized that there was a large swath of the population, especially entrepreneurs that knew that there was some viability to having a social media presence, but knew absolutely nothing about it. So we chose the healthcare sector because we found that they had really readily available contact. So we were able to do some early marketing and get an initial roster of customers. And it was just fully hands-off. The technology would find content to post and would post it to be in line with that particular topics. And we ended up getting bought by one of our first large customers, which is a chain of healthcare practices. And they just wanted that as a competitive advantage versus their competition. I'm sure I'm losing count here. There was another one that was a social media, or it was a viral marketing tool for online publications called Upshare. And we sold that to a, a large competitor of ours. And then the latest one that I was a part of, I was the CEO of a company called Growflow. We did a compliance inventory management point of sale and analytics for cannabis companies, licensed cannabis companies in the US. Uh, we were the largest in market by the time we sold about three and a half years in and sold that one to a strategic buyer who's also an industry participant who is not competitive. I just wanted to create a bigger differentiator for their clients. And here we are today. Wow. How many companies do you usually run at a time? Back in the day, it was a couple. These days, it's one. And I've found now, I don't ever really recommend that folks multitask entrepreneurially a whole heck of a lot. And I, I learned that the hard way just because of the fact that when I would split my focus across two or three projects, I was not going nearly as deep. I wasn't complex. Like the complexity of my thinking was not there. It was very simple task oriented work. And it got me to a certain point. And, and that point was you know, good enough to sell the company, make a little money, 
invest the vast majority of it back into the next company and bootstrap through that experience. But I found that when I was able to have enough discipline to only do one thing and do it better than anybody else in the world, it just created a much more significant outcome financially for myself and for shareholders versus what I was effectively doing early on was hedging. I was afraid that something that I was investing a tremendous amount of time in would not work out. And I was so afraid of being left behind entrepreneurially by various peers that I respected that I wanted to do a couple things in case I found that one thing wasn't working, I could just completely step into that other thing and not start from scratch. That fear-based thinking I paid the tax for by was only giving at best 50% to two ventures. Uh, So I wouldn't recommend it for anybody else, but for me, it did give me a much more accelerated paid education in figuring out exactly what tactics were like work across the board, which ones only work in specific cases for specific markets, which strategies are perennial and which ones are temporary, so on and so forth. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Is like, I think as entrepreneurs, we tend to have shiny object syndrome and like we might be working on something, but then we get another idea and another idea, another, and we're launching 10 different things at the same time or working on 10 different things. And then you can only dedicate 10% of your time and money to each thing versus 100% to one thing. Yeah, it's it's funny because oftentimes we're, as entrepreneurs, we're told, we're given the answer there. Oftentimes the more experienced folks will say, do one thing until it's to the point where you don't have to be the driver. You can sit back, be the investor. Other people are creating the repeatable outcomes and you can actually pivot your focus elsewhere if you want to without sabotaging the efficacy of that business. And I remember there was an entrepreneur that really, really tried to drive this point home for me. And I just didn't want to listen. His name was Dario Melli, who's one of the founders of Hootsuite and uh, runs a company right now called Quietly, which is also really awesome. We've been customers of them before. And he tried to tell me many years ago, at least maybe nine or 10 years ago, just do one thing. Uh, trust me. And, and I couldn't find a way to listen until I learned the hard way. And finally, years later, it was like, all right, maybe I'll do what Dario told me. He was right. Oddly enough, weirdly enough, all the things that the old guards say for the most part end up being right. If it's like on a broad philosophical level rather than on a tactical level, which tactics do have a life cycle and do decay, but the philosophy, the strategies end up almost always working to some degree. If I had it all back, I would listen to people a lot earlier and not think that I was always the exception. So when you launch a business, Are you doing it with the intention of exiting it at some point or is that just kind of how things have worked? Originally, it was just kind of how things worked, but it is now very much intentional, especially if it's a venture back business. If I'm raising money, the implicit understanding is inevitably those investors are going to want liquidity and they're going to want their venture level returns which is like at least 10x what they invested. So like through that lens, they have a specific horizon. They they raise money from their limited partner uh, with the promise of actually returning that capital after a specific period of time, plus the profits. And because of that, if I'm ever raising money for something, I'm building a business that will inevitably have a liquidity. Whether I'm continuing to be part of it or not is kind of immaterial because the goal to get a business to be exitable it is also the, the same goal, the same conditions must be true to shift gears into more of an investor seat rather than in an operator seat. And in my opinion, if I were to keep a business forever, it, I would want to be in that seat anyway. So usually oftentimes talk about the difference between being a founder and being a CEO. There was a really great blog post many years ago by Fred Wilson, 
software ventures who talked about, he was in a boardroom with a, a board member of one of his portfolio companies who told him a great CEO does three things and three things only. Vision and strategy, hiring, recruiting, and retention, making sure enough cash in the bank for the company to reach its goals. That's it. And if you're doing anything else outside of that, oftentimes you're not playing the role of the CEO. You're doing something else. You're wearing multiple hats. In contrast, founder does everything. Like the founder does everything that needs to be done. They're the CEO, they're the janitor. And the faster an entrepreneur can go from a founder to a CEO purely, that's when the business is actually really able to scale because they're not constrained by the ability of that one person. So for me now, like my goal is always to get to that point as quickly as possible so that I'm able to be freed up to think strategically, to think creatively, to solve big problems, to potentially buy businesses to tack onto the existing one or potentially take advantage of someone who wants to buy ours. And when I'm able to do that, I'm actually able to devote the necessary time. Like if it's a big transaction, like this last was just shy of 70 million. And like that sort of transaction is like, you're doing another full-time job of at least, you know, six, seven, eight months of intense daily diligence and research and collaboration with that other team and an army of attorneys, that's a full-time job and then some by itself. Couple that with the fact that if you're still in the founder's chair or if you're doing anything outside of the CEO's job, you're going to be doing two complete full-time jobs at once. And if the company is trying to raise money at the same time in the event that the acquisition does not occur and most of them don't, most of them evaporate before they complete. That's three full-time jobs. Right. So if you haven't completely exited and I've done that before, I've been in that seat before and it's maddening. It's like, there's no more detaxing activity that I've ever experienced in my life to the point where at the end of the day, you just want to cry, but your emotions are all so dead at that point that you can't, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. So I wouldn't recommend anybody actually try to go through the process of selling a company. If it's like eight, nine figures, if it's seven figures, you can do it right? It's the, the diligence threshold is going to be a lot lower, but if it's like eight or nine figures, it's a, a very significant investment of time. And in a situation like that, you usually can't tell your team that you're going through that because most of them, again, don't work. They don't end up going through something comes out in diligence, either you walk away or they walk away. One of those things ends up happening, right? And if you clue everybody on the team into what's happening, performance of the business can suffer. And the psychology and culture can be sabotaged on a deal, which again, leads to the performance of the business suffering. And if the performance of the business suffers while the transaction is in diligence, oftentimes that's a reason that the transaction goes away. Lots of moving parts. And, and so I would say if I'm building anything now, yes, it's with the express intention of making it sellable, but not necessarily to sell it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And you had mentioned raising capital, and I guess you've raised over $100 million in capital. Uh, how does that process work, or what does that look like? Great question. There are a number of ways, just like there are a number of different philosophies on how to build a business, there are a number of different philosophies on how to raise capital. A lot of people do it in a way that I haven't done it, where they all build a really deep, richly engaged network that includes other venture-backed founders and investors. I haven't done that. And I still haven't done that to this day. I have very much treated fundraising like an enterprise sales process that thrives on cold out. So I'll basically create what mimics an enterprise sales pipeline and an enterprise sales process and enterprise sales motions. But the product in this case is our stock, 
the customer are the investors who want to buy the stock. And our goal is to connect with the absolute perfect investor who we are in thesis for as quickly as possible and arm them with as much information as I can to ensure that when they go back to their team, because most of these people are people with jobs and they have a process they have to follow in a checklist, they have to go through, get me familiar with that checklist as quickly as possible, arm them with enough materials so they can go back and lobby for getting us to the next step with their team and just try to approach the problem with volume rather than trying to cultivate sporadic warm leads that you know most investors want to ride the fence as long as possible because they don't want to take an absurd amount of risk. Only a select few very professional, very proficient investors will ever lead around because they actually have the ability to do diligence on a company and do it well. Once that's done, it's an easy threshold to overcome to raise the rest of the money because most of the other investors will capitalize on that pre-done diligence. Sometimes that leads to really bad things. I like what we saw with FTX and with several others. But if one party makes a mistake, for example, then every other investor will. But if, for example, you're able to get a bunch of savvy investors on board that all do their diligence, you end up learning a tremendous amount about your company that you would never have known going into the process. And albeit stressful, it's a, a really big asset. So it's not an unfamiliar process. It is as simple as that. I have. Like I said, raised many, many, many millions for a variety of different companies, mine and also client companies when I was briefly running a boutique investment bank that helped start up startups raise capital or companies that I was working for that raised that I was kind of accountable for raising money for them. All of those processes that ran the same exact process, they worked every time. And so now do you launch, scale, grow companies or what is it that you do now aside from growing your own companies? I am a, a very active mentor for the accelerator programs, trying to give back to ambitious founders, trying to change the world. I still love building companies. Like you mentioned, I still do do that myself. I'm kind of in the process of refining a few ideas right now to figure out which one I want to devote myself to for the next large chunk of time. And outside of that, I also do work with a handful of other founders with other clients trying to help them win big. I'm very, very selective on that front because all those situations would take me away from building my own things as well. Also do a little bit of public speaking as well, mostly to universities and their entrepreneurship programs and so forth. But that has taken me from Nigeria to Latvia to pretty vanilla places. Like I'm going to do one in Rochester, New York. So wherever wants to learn, wherever students want to learn lessons that are very, very difficult to learn and are non-intuitive and are just being guru taught on YouTube these days, I'm really excited to share. So if someone wanted to work with you for you to help them grow, scale, exit their business, is that an option for people or what does that look like? Yeah. I mean, it's an option to some degree. I've had a couple of folks reach out on LinkedIn. I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. It's the first time in my life I've been active on social media at all. I also have had a couple of folks come through, like I have a website for my consulting practice. It's called startupshortcuts.co. I'm not super actively promoting that. I often don't. People will find it and kind of come through that process and I'll chat with them and maybe two out of 10, I'll, I'll say, okay, this could potentially be a fit, but it is an investment for those founders. So it's not a day one kind of motion. Uh, it's mm -hmm. for folks that already have existing businesses that maybe they're bootstrapped at this point and they want to raise money. Maybe they've gotten to the point where you know they've gotten to a decent revenue threshold and they've hit a plateau or they're having a hard time with a hostile board or they accidentally created a poor company culture where they want to package the company up to sell and 
because it's really, really stressful. And so I'll basically go in and work with them to implement the playbook that uh, I've learned from others and I've compiled myself, augmented through my experience in academia and in the accelerator programs and so forth. We'll just implement all those things. And the funny thing is that while the, oftentimes the motivation of the founders that come to me are like, I want to build this company to sell. By the time we've implemented everything, the business is really predictable in terms of its outputs, they're working less than they ever have. And there's growth every month, like clockwork that they can forecast 90 to 120 days out. And because of that, most of them don't actually want to sell it because it's mm. not completely ruining their life. So, mm. so that's been kind of a fun realization over the past year or so, as I've been actually giving myself time to do that with a handful of folks. It's been really fun and rewarding. When does someone know that they should sell or how do you know whether to sell or not i guess great question <laughs> honestly it's to sell for a variety of different reasons and there's no perfect time really ever in the same way that it's impossible to time the market if you're an investor it's pretty impossible to know the exact perfect moment to sell i've found that the easiest barometer for me is when i feel like i have given all i possibly can to that business and by continuing to do so, the business doesn't necessarily get whole heck of a lot better. I often find that if I want to, if I've turned a corner in my own head and I would prefer to think exclusively about another problem, that's also a good time to sell. So if I've like set that business up so I could leave for several months at a time and that business can continue to grow like clockwork, I'll basically know, okay, selling is an option. And now I need to go through like kind of a, like a 250 point diligence checklist first to make sure that everything is represented in the data room and then basically see, okay, who could be a potential buyer? Oftentimes what I'll do first, cause like if you go and put a business up for sale and you hire an investment bank and a lot of businesses sell like that, the leverage that you have is often lower than if a business approached you, right? Like if you want to sell, like oftentimes people say, Hey, a bank will lend to me when I don't need the money, right? The same thing is true here. If you want to sell, your asking price is cut in half. If you don't want to sell, you have more of the leverage. And if you have a great asset that performs and that can help you achieve your goals in the world by hanging on to it, and it's like a valuable asset that's hard to rev. Like if you have intellectual property, if you've built some sort of competitive moat in some way, that ends up being a really, really powerful frame to start from. And that's when you can just start to build relationships with potential acquirers, whether they're strategic buyers that want to expand their offering to include something like what you have, or if it's private equity or something like that, just starting to build relationships there can be really, really helpful. Like my last several exits have just been relationship driven. I have gone into every one of those conversations with the intention of getting that person interested, but I will never come out and say it. I'll basically just start to float things like what could be true if we were to somehow join forces? Should we think about like a joint venture? What could this opportunity look like if we did things together in a much more integrated way than you know, we would with the rest of the market. And oftentimes that will end up planting the seed in that person's mind and they'll start to think about acquisition. Yeah, that makes sense. And that in some ways, unless you have to sell for some reason, that it's better to wait until someone approaches you to sell than to try to sell mm -hmm. it. I wouldn't just wait, right? Like mm -hmm. it's kind of like, you know, moving out to, to um, Hollywood and hoping to be discovered by working mm -hmm. in a coffee shop. It's, mm -hmm. uh, there's always a chance that it could happen, but if you're not taking matters into your own hands, there's no guarantee and you might wait forever. So 
just by getting to know every competitive CEO, by getting to know every complimentary CEO, by getting to know every possible derivation of what an acquirer might look like and just having conversations with them. It's as simple as just like, I just reach out to people via email or I'll talk to people that are already in my network and be like, you know, this person's contact information. I would love to just chat with them, talk about the industry. I would do that with all the competitive CEOs that we would compete on business with. And more often than not, I would often just approach them and be like, Hey, I know we're competitors, but I would love to be also be friends, like on a personal level. And just, we don't have to give each other information, but happy to share our perspectives on the industry. Happy to answer some questions about what we're doing as a business, things that we're seeing. You don't have to return the favor. I'm just happy to share. No one really says no to it for the most part. And over the course of six, 12, 18 months, if you do that once a quarter or so, it gets to the point where you start to think about what life could be like if you were working together. And by the time we sold the last one, I had four or five different CEOs that were trying to figure out ways to make it happen. And one of them, well, just the one that, the one that ended up buying us was the one that just moved fastest and was most motivated to do so. So making connections and networking and developing a yeah. relationship that way. Yeah. And trying to steer the conversation in a way that gets people thinking about what life could be like if you were a team. That's a good idea. Good suggestion. Was there anything in particular maybe that we hadn't talked about that you wanted to touch on? I would say one thing that I've found to be useful is to just be very, very careful of who I am allowing to plant thoughts in my own mind in terms of like information. So there are a lot of gurus out there that build certain things just to sell, right? Mm -hmm. That they haven't used themselves. Like I'm a huge big time development and productivity nutcase. I've never built anything in that space to sell at this point in time, but I do have like very, very specific systems I've been using for 15 years. And I can tell in an instant if somebody who's talking about the same thing has just built something in a weekend with the intention to sell people rather than the ones who have actually been using it for a decade plus. And, you know, the non-intuitive evolutions of their systems have reared their heads and they've listened to them because like, it's just not when you make things like just really beautiful and pretty and aren't actually functional and you're doing things that seem like they would be good ideas, but you haven't actually used. It's immediately apparent to people who are like purists in that space. And the same thing ends up being true for almost anything. There are gurus out there like, oh, this is our marketing plan that we took our agency from zero to 50 grand a month or something like that. And the truth is you don't need a whole heck of a lot of precision to take an agency from zero to 50 grand a month. Most are charging things like 10 grand a month anyway. So all you need to do is get five clients, right? So, and you'd be there and that doesn't even speak to how long those clients have survived. And if, you know, there's viability behind the model, but like the actual ninja secrets, quote unquote, might just be like, Hey, post Facebook ads and have like a sales letter, right? Like a, a VSL situation. Like that's the whole method. I think if you're able to ensure that the people you're taking advice from and getting information from are people who have been in the operator seat multiple times, have had multiple successes and multiple failures, they've been humbled to the point where they don't think they know everything and they're not just like God's gift to entrepreneurship, that becomes the best possible advice you can get. People have had multiple at-bats. They've been in different scenarios. They've been non-competed in an industry and they've been forced to go ahead and take their lessons and apply them to another industry. That ends up being gold. Everything else is kind of a crapshoot. There's some really good advice out there. There's some really bad advice out there. There's some like inconclusive advice out there. 
what I've found to be true is like, just like in growth experiments, best case scenarios, it's a successful test and you learn something. Real close behind that is a failed experiment and you learn something. The worst thing that can happen in any test is an inconclusive test. You put the work in, you haven't learned anything. And that's oftentimes where a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck is they're in a, a business where they've had to scratch and claw for every single dollar for several years and it hasn't taken off, but it's successful enough that they feel trapped in it. That is to me like entrepreneurial purgatory. I think a lot of us have been there, even the ones that have been really successful or have had crash and burn failures. And that's like the worst situation to be in for sure. So if you find yourself there, like the most brave thing you can do is really take a hard look and do some deep inquiry into what's keeping you there. And nine times out of 10, your offer isn't resonant with a growing market and, and you haven't been able to actually create consistency and a narrow enough scope to, to effectively productize and be really, really efficient in helping clients reach outcomes and customers reach outcomes. There's a lot there, but it's difficult to pinpoint one lesson for folks to take away, but hopefully there was something there for folks. I really appreciate your time today. I think there's been a lot of good takeaways for people thinking about launching, growing, scaling, selling a business and the steps to take. Is the best place for people to find you is travisstefan.com? That's a personal site that's pretty old and oh, hasn't been okay. updated a whole heck of a lot. I mean, I am available through that, but what you'll see there is pretty, pretty old. I've been meaning to change it for a while, but I do put blinders on and only focus on the task at hand usually. And that's usually been outside of scope, but you can find me on Instagram now. You can find me on Twitter at Travis Steffen, S-T-E-S-F-E-N. And I'm also on LinkedIn, like trying to be somewhat active on all three. Um, so I'm available on all those. And, and if you're in any of the accelerator systems, there's usually like several hundred founders on their Slack groups. I'm in most of those as a mentor. So depending on who you are, where you are, like you could find me in different. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Are you a frugalpreneur looking to connect with like-minded individuals? Join our community on Slack. Connect with fellow listeners, share your thoughts on episodes, engage in meaningful discussions, including money-saving tips and entrepreneurial insights, and help shape the future of the Frugalpreneur podcast. Plus, you can submit your questions in written or audio form to be featured on the show. Let's build a supportive space together. Join us now at frugal.show forward slash slack. See you on the inside.